Good morning. Didn't know Dave and Esther were going to be here this morning. And I know you're not newcomers, but it's great to see you. It's a pleasant surprise. Uh, I'm kind of in a good mood this morning because I ate well yesterday. We went to, um, I know this is random, but uh, we went to a family wedding in Bethesda, Maryland, Southern Maryland, yesterday afternoon. I got to bring my family and then spend time with my Maryland family and then the reception was a crab feast, and Maryland is for crabs, so the bumper stickers say. And so I, well, we ate, at least I did, not Lisa. She doesn't even like seafood, poor thing. But we ate, um, <laughs> we ate well. We had, they started with like crab cakes, Maryland crab cakes, and then brought out jumbo golf shrimp. Uh, you, you couldn't eat it in one bite. You had to break it in pieces. It was so big. You're getting hungry. And then they brought out the the crabs. And I haven't had them that big since I was a kid. I didn't even know they grew them that big anymore. They were just absolutely delicious. And then they had desserts and other foods as well. Uh, but it was a great family time yesterday and, and wonderful. It was a well wonderful celebration. And I think I'm in a good mood as I reflect about what happened is because marriage took place within the confines of a church under the submission of the Lord. Beautiful words were spoken, doctrine. We were all exposed to sound teaching and doctrine. And then we got to celebrate that as a family. And and it was just a a joyous time and a joyous day in my life. I am excited to be here this morning and uh, just dig into God's word. We are in Nehemiah chapter 5. And we've been studying this great book of Nehemiah and immersing ourselves in the lessons of Scripture that the Old Testament has to teach us. And the we were reminded this morning in Sunday school that one of the ways that we grow, one of the primary ways that we grow in Christ is by God's word. And it's like the soil that we place ourselves in. So reason would tell us the more we expose ourselves to God's word, the more opportunity we have to grow in Christ And I'm excited about the passage this morning because it's a great opportunity for us to to hear God's perspective on important matters and areas of our lives. Well, in the beginning parts of chapter five, we basically learned in the book of Nehemiah about Christian stewardship. And that is that God has something to say. He speaks into our lives regarding our possessions, the things we own. And even how we handle those. And I really appreciate that teaching and the the reminder from Scripture because our hearts aren't always prone to look at our possessions and handle our possessions the way God informs us to. A lot of times we we want to accumulate things so that our our souls can feel safe and content, kind of like the. The rich guy in the New Testament that had bumper crops and he built bigger barns and he built bigger barns. And finally, he was he was after these words or this certain feeling in his heart that was basically now I'm set for life. I've got the future taken care of the things that I was once anxious about and worried about. I'm set for life. And Jesus called that person uh, foolish. Because he tried to satisfy the longings of his soul in something that was fleeting and temporary, and his life was taken. And so this is a great reminder for us as we look at God's word and we think about our possessions and our time and how we handle these things. 
How are we satisfying the longings of our souls? I think what Jesus means when he shares these kind of parables with us is that that when we have Christ, we're set for life. That placing our faith in Christ and and trusting in our Heavenly Father to provide for us on a daily basis is really the only true place that our soul will ever find the rest that it longs for. So we'll get a little more of that in this morning's teaching. Well, in chapter 5, we began about Christian stewardship. And what was happening there was that the Israelites, in trying to rebuild their lives of worship, were suffering hard times. And they were undergoing a famine. And then they had to pay exorbitant, exorbitant amount of taxes to the king and his programs and, and his methods. But on top of all that, their own brothers within the commonwealth of Israel were exploiting them. Those that, the, the upper class, you might say, were exploiting the lower class because times were so hard they couldn't make ends meet. And so... The greedy heart saw that as an opportunity to take advantage of them. They are willing. They had to sell their land. They even were selling their kids. They were selling their services, their labor. And so these greedy rich folks said, man, I can just I can expand my farms, my possessions, my assets. And Nehemiah called him to the carpet on that. And he said, this is what God's word says about how we're to live and how we're to treat one another and what we're to do with our possessions. And you're being greedy and you are taking advantage of your own brothers. And when we close that section of scripture, they had repented and they agreed. My life has gone in the wrong direction. I need to line it back up with what God's word has to say. They did that. They repented. And when we closed, they basically had a mini revival and all of Israel at that time were singing their praises to God. Well, the last part of this chapter is kind of a continuation of that same theme. But rather than Nehemiah sharing about what was going on in Israel, he shares his own heart. And he shares his personal example of, of his application of Christian stewardship. And so we'll find that Nehemiah practice, practices what he preaches And in looking at how Nehemiah handles his day and his time, that we'll learn some very valuable lessons that we can apply to our own lives. So I'm going to read verses in chapter 5, 14 through 19. And I'm going to go ahead and read that in its entirety. Beginning in verse 14. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds And every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. 
Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the servants service was too heavy on his people. Remember for my good, oh, my God, all that I have done for this people. I want to draw four principles out of that text. And the first principle is worshipers serve at their own expense. And I'm using the word worshipers there because I want us to include ourselves in these in these verses. And our tendency is when we when we start talking about ministers or leaders, then we just think about the pastor or the elders. But this is all believers, all those that are disciples of God, because the New Testament says we're all ministers. We're all priests from a royal priesthood. As a governor of the people of Israel, there was a certain protocol that took place. They had a way of doing things just like we do in our world, world of politics and church government and so forth. And one of the ways they did things was that if you were in that position, there were certain things that you had coming to you. There were there were expectations. There was an understanding that in order for you to play this role and to do your job, that it was going to require certain assets and certain um, you know, amounts of food and, and provisions so that you could do your job well in serving the people. And it was just an understood thing there. The way that they were reimbursed for the service was through taxing the people. So they taxed the people so they had enough money to take care of their leaders and their governors <clears throat> to make sure that their expenses were covered. And kind of the, the, the normal way of thinking is that you know, this is an important position. In order for me to do my job, I need to be recompensed a certain amount in order to do it well. And I have responsibilities that I need to carry out. And so basically I, I deserve to be well taken care of in this way. I deserve to be reimbursed. And this is this is right. This is true. If we're doing a certain job and there's a amount of money that's been agreed upon, then we do have that coming to us. Uh, we should be reimbursed for that. Leaders in pub and per public servants, ministers, whatever, um, should have their expenses covered according to their job description. Uh, even the Apostle Paul teaches in Scripture not to muzzle the ox, which is a kind of a strange Old Testament way of saying that if somebody is out there working, they should gain the rewards of their work and their labors. And even some leaders, if they do a good job, they deserve a double portion. And so this is a standard way of thinking. It's, an, it's a correct way of thinking. But there is a rub and there is something else that Scripture adds to this responsibility of leading and serving. And I think the rub in this is that not only does the Bible say that he that God raises up leaders, but the definition of leaders within the church or within ministry or whatever, really, whatever God God given responsibility we have is the idea of service. So we are servant leaders and Christ, of course, set the great example by washing feet, by serving his disciples and he even gave the specific teaching that to be when God calls you to be a leader, it's it's not so that you can lord it over people and you can take advantage of people. It's actually to offer them the leadership they need. But a lot of the leadership they, they need is for you to serve them. And so there's a little bit of tension there. Or at least there's a different perspective or a different way to look at leadership when we read Holy Scripture. 
And what Nehemiah is realizing here as a believer, as a man who fears God, as a man who lives his life every day in a way that he wants to please God, he evaluates the situation and reasons to himself, I am entitled to this. As a matter of fact, the governors that went before me, were they would get all they can get. And it was a heavy tax on the people. But as I assess the situation, I see that the people that I have been hired and appointed to serve are suffering financially. And so though it, it, it's due me and I've earned it and worked, certainly worked hard for it, though it's legal, for him it was unethical. Because in order for him to be reimbursed for his service, it would cause a even a greater hardship on the people that he was serving. And so what he does is he begins to to take on the cost and pay things out of his own pocket. He, be, he makes per, personal sacrifice in order to do his job of caring for the people. The people of God often find themselves leading or serving or perhaps better said ministering at their own expense. And that's basically what Nehemiah was doing in that day. Because there are often conflicts. There are, there are certain needs that we have in life. And there are certain roles that we play in life. But sooner or later there are going to be conflicts or tension where the thing that we think we need or deserve, we're going to have to forego in order to actually do our job of serving that individual. So let's just take um, marriage, for example. Say you're single and you want to start a family. In this, in this relationship, there are going to be times when the, the needs of your spouse are going to be greater than your personal needs. And at your own expense, you're going to forego in order to keep the love, the commitment and the unity there. You're going to forego the thing that you thought you had come that you rightly have coming to you according to roles and responsibilities. And you're going to offer that your time, your sacrifice, your money, your love, your service or whatever to your spouse in your marriage at your own expense, at your own cost. And that's what makes the beauty of oneness and biblical love and commitment. Same goes, say that same couple, they get married and then they have children. You know, what's going to happen? It's the same kind of relationship. Um, you, you are the leaders. Parents are the leaders, the servants of the home, and they serve the children. And there's going to be times when there's, there's a conflict of personal interest. So what happens when uh, I'll use moms because moms get the credit for this most of the time. You you need your sleep, moms. You deserve to sleep well, considering all of your household responsibilities and the way that you serve your family. But your child is sick. Maybe your child's throwing up, just for whatever reason, not feeling well. And then what, do the mother, what does the mom do? At their own expense, though they deserve to be in their beds cuddled up, they sacrificially give 
to their children so that they can serve them because they're looking at they're looking as at that person's needs as greater than their own. So at their own personal cost, in order to minister, in order to rightly serve, they forgo what technically is due them, at least uh, pretty much every mom I've ever known has done that. And, of course, this principle happens in every kind of relationship where you might be in some kind of leadership position. Same thing with bosses. You know, as, as bosses, as employers, we need to look out for those that are under us. And there's times when, though we could be putting more money in our bank accounts, we have to realize that our workers have mouths to feed, too. They have responsibilities. They have things that, that need to take place at home. And so there's times where we're going to need to forego what we have deserved, what, deserved what, uh, and earned, whether it's profits or whatever, in order to rightly serve in a biblical way. We forgo these things. And so the same thing goes with ministry many times, not just pastor, but any kind of ministry. Unfortunately, a lot of um, some of the ministry that we're exposed to in our culture, uh, leaders and ministers, speakers and so forth, uh, exploit people and use that position as a way to, to fill their their wallets with money instead of as a way to serve their people. They look out for their own interests. But when it comes to ministry, we often have to think about uh, the things that we've earned as opposed to the people that we're actually supposed to be serving, whether it's in a marriage, in the home or in the place of employment and so forth, whether it's in the church. And, and, and find that balance between is, is the income and, and the reward, is it really meeting my expectation or my role of service? Am I really serving the people as well as I could through this? So a lot of times we find ourselves, actually probably most of the time, we find ourselves in whatever area that we minister in, that we are often called to give our personal time and our personal sacrifice. In other, in other words, minister at our own expense and our own cost. And it's a biblical mindset and sometimes it is necessary. In Nehemiah's day, the Old Testament church, he did not want to impose upon them any more personal burden that they were already suffering under because there's a mission to do. Now, Nehemiah led them, but these were the people that were doing the work. These were the people they were already giving what they could. They were already digging in the rubble to, to, to get the stones to set them in place and to mix the mortar. So they were already maxed out. He did not want to put upon them any unnecessary burdens to try to free them up the best he could that was within his power to free them up to do their ministry to the Lord, to do the work that God had called them to do. As a godly man, as a God-fearing, a God-fearing man. So now it turns out that uh, Nehemiah could afford to do this. Now, I couldn't afford to not take an income for 12 years. Uh, my savings would quickly depreciate. And Nehemiah was wealthy enough to where he could not take a paycheck, in essence, and be generous for 12 years. And it didn't really hurt him that bad. I mean, he still... 150 people at your table. That's a lot of mouths to feed. Now, he had servants and so forth, but he said... 
I did this at my own expense. Now, if you look back in the previous chapters, you'll remember that some of those riches and that wealth came from the King Artaxerxes. Because he said, King, when I go back, um, can, can you make sure I get the timber I need to build my house? And can you make sure that you provide the funds that I need to do all of this? The king says, sure. I guess he wrote him some kind of check or something like that. So he actually could afford to do this. God was generous to Nehemiah. God put him in that kind of position. So there's personal sacrifice there as well, but he was also what we would call a righteous rich man. But he could have been wealthier. He could have put more money in his bank. He could have taken advantage like the other people were doing. He could have taken advantage of these people. But he paid for his own stuff, paid for his own gas, his own Internet service, his own laptop computers, all the things that you needed in that day to be a good leader and a a good servant. So he was very, um, very generous. You know, I think about that. Look at the roots of this body of believers. That's how we started. Because we started, the ministry basically was birthed out of personal expense. The Kirkendalls and the Owens had church and Sunday school in their own homes. That meant that they had to, you know, do the preparations. They had to do the cleaning to prepare for the meetings. And then after everybody was gone, including the children, there was there was cleaning up to do. And sure, everybody pitched in for this. But the, the point is that it was at personal expense. There were there was a, there are a lot of times where there's just not reimbursement available or people choose not to be reimbursed. But because of the roots, because of the willingness of people to pay out of their own pocket when necessary so that ministry can take place. Ministry does take place where it would not ordinarily take place because people are willing to give of their time and their sacrifices and forego reimbursement at times. The idea is that even more ministry can take place. So that's how this church was birthed. We still we still see the same thing. I can tell you right now that if there were not people in this congregation that served voluntarily, willingly and at their own expense. Yeah, money out of their own pockets. We couldn't have what we have here today. There's I don't know that we could sustain what we have. Just just think about the the grounds and the maintenance here that is often done at people's personal expense. A lot of times we don't even know what takes place. Something as simple as weeding a flower bed. Uh, Calculate what we would have to pay somebody to to cut the grounds and to to keep the maintenance of this building, the HVAC and so forth. Calculate all that takes place here and see if we could, if we had enough money to do what we do. I don't think we would. But because people are willing at their own expense to give. There's a lot of ministry that is stretched and, and, and squeezed out of this body. It actually has a worldwide effect. Our missions gives approximately 15% of our, this church's income. They're, they're able to do that. They're, we are a generous body. We are missions-minded, and we want to try to give to further God's kingdom in that sense. It is ministry at our own cost for the glory of of God, that sacrifice that takes place. And I appreciate being a part of a body that is willing to do that. I think every time we have like a retreat, these retreats that come up, uh, a lot of you will prepare, 
buy snacks or prepare food for their treat at your own expense and then write a check so that your child can can attend that retreat. It's it's ministry. Uh, and, And we couldn't have the kind of retreats that we do if we did not have ministry at our own expense there. So I appreciate that. Well, Nehemiah wanted to see his people edified. He wanted to to see them taken care of. If it was in his power not to add a burden to them so that they could be freed up to minister, then that's what they did. You know, actually, our leadership was faced with tough decision when the economy went south here in America. And, um, you know, we were actually... In the middle of a building drive, you might say, we, we were thinking about an addition and so forth. And we had some plans drawn up and there was opportunity given towards that. But then when the economy sunk and people were losing their retirement, and their income was going down, expenses were going up. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have not said a whole lot until recently. We didn't continue to ask for a building drive because the very people that we were asking to give towards it were having a hard time putting food on the table. And so as to not put an extra burden on the people that we serve, we thought that's not as important right now. There's other things to take care of. So, you know, churches have to make these kind of decisions and we have to make these kind of decisions personally as well. Nehemiah loved his people and he served his people well at his own expense. The second principle we see here is that worshipers persevere. Verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work as well. So it wasn't just Nehemiah, anybody on his team, anybody on his payroll. He made sure, hey, get out of bed and get up on the wall. He was he was sold out for this mission of God, but he persevered, he says. He declined opportunities to advance his riches, to advance his position, and persevered on the wall. Now, I love the way that Eugene Peterson, perhaps best known, he's written many books, but best known for the message. He put the Bible called the message, which is is really scaled down uh, to vernacular, so it is very, very easy to understand. Contemporary language. He describes perseverance as this. And I really love this practical definition. A long obedience in the same direction. Perseverance. So a long obedience in the same direction. I like the right direction. So a long... He says God blesses those that are long-suffering. Those that... Just stick it out and they stick it out and they stick it out. There's a job to be done. Uh, There's no reason why I can't do it or God has called me or required it of me. And so I'm just going to keep doing this until it's finished or until God does something different. Perseverance is hard. I'm by nature an impatient person. I want everything right now. And we are. In an impatient culture where we're used to getting things very, very quickly. And there's something to say for being able to get things quickly. It has its place in life. But there are a lot of things that just take time. And there's there's no other way to do it or do it right. There are things in life that you cannot take shortcuts on. That you cannot snap your fingers or push a button. And there it's delivered in your box or at your house. 
There are things that require perseverance. And in our impatient culture, we move quickly from relationship to relationship, from job to job, from house to house, from church to church. And a lot of times we don't give ourselves the opportunity to just stick it out, to hang in there. And therefore, we don't reap the benefits or the reward at the end of that long line of perseverance. Marriage is is another great example of where it really pay perseverance really pays off because you just can't you can't experience all of the goodness of marriage in the first week or the first year. I remember um, I literally remember about five years into our marriage. I was just by myself and I was thinking to myself, man, am I in love? There is no way there's no way I could love my wife. Any more than I do now. And about 10 years later, I was like, man, I don't even know how it was possible. But I love my wife more now than I did five years ago when it was impossible to even love her that much. So how does that happen? How do you get to these kind of places where you think, no, nothing's going to change or can't even get any better. It's not possible. It's that long line of perseverance because you're just doing life together. You're experiencing more things together. You're, you're opening up to one another. You're more vulnerable. And it's that way in, in the relationships that God gives us in life. It's that way with the work of ministry. It just We just have to hang in there. I mean, you think about the missionaries. I mean, they, they go. They give of their personal time and expenses. Their desires to watch souls come to Christ. They don't fly over there and all of a sudden the whole village just got saved. It it just takes a tremendous amount of determination and perseverance. You just keep showing up. You keep building relationships. You keep putting the word of God out there. You have to trust God for the results. But God rewards long suffering. He he loves faithfulness. Not just the immediate results that we often look at, but he absolutely loves faithfulness. So we need to persevere in our marriages. We need to persevere in our parenting. And you know how it goes. Your kids are young and they're not as perfect as you thought they were going to be when they were born. They're not quite as cute as they were. You know, the disobedience is growing up into something a little more fierce. It's not as cute as it was. And if we just throw up our arms and say, I can't do this, then we've just turned our children over to their own folly. And they need us every day to offer that encouragement, offer that instruction. It's, it's, that, per, it's that long line of consistency. And that's how, of course, we learned in, in Proverbs as well. How does wisdom come? It's when we walk the path and we just stay on the path. You don't get smart in one day a week. You can read the Bible through in a whole year, but it takes more than that. It takes more than that. A long line of walking in the same direction or a long line of obedience. Even in ministry, when I I've been in the pastor for 12 years now, and I, I remember, of course, I was a new pastor. So I read everything I could about pastoring. And I read back then that if you stayed in the at one church. For five years, you were basically an exception to the rule because or say longer than that, because most pastors change churches 
sooner than five years. And I think now it's even shorter time than that. And so that's kind of sad because uh, statistics also say that in an average church that it takes, um, or, or even ministry, but they said church, seven to 12 years before things really start being as fruitful as they can be based on the direction that the, that the, the leaders take the church. So if, if you put those two together, you have pastors moving around really prematurely before they've ever had a chance to get the fruit, to bear the fruit that their leadership would offer if they would have stayed in that long line of obedience. <clears throat> Perseverance, a long line of obedience. You know, it's a good time to ask ourselves, where are we with that? Like, have we dropped the anchor in our marriages? I mean, are we just, we're just in it and we're determined? There's, there's a job to be done. There's a relationship to be had. There's joy to be had. Gifts to be had. Or have we dropped our anchor where God has asked us to drop our anchor and hang it in there with our parenting? I mean, the temptation is to bail. People in our world, they bail all the time on all these important institutions that God has established. Marriage, parenting, churches. You know, you don't see the word church hopping in the New Testament. It's, it's a new phenomenon. I mean, there, there were, I know that in church history, there's different ways and fads, but one of our fads that we watched and are watching is church hopping. People just go from one thing to the next. There's no idea or, or, or mindset of commitment or the fact that, hey, maybe I should just stay here and immerse myself with this particular group of people whom God has appointed leaders over. A long line of perseverance or marriages or jobs or ministry or church. And our faith. When I went to Calvary Bible Church in Columbia, South Carolina, there was a guy that um, would often speak when the pastor had to be out of town for whatever reason. And uh, I, th I think his name was Elmer Thompson. Do you remember? Was it Elmer Thompson? Anyway, he he was a retired missionary. Uh, he was pretty, pretty well known in, in the field of missions. I don't know of him. Well, he would speak at our church. And I don't mean to make fun of, of elderly people, but he was very old at this time. And he was very, he was very, uh, you know, very wrinkly. And you could tell he was, he, just his stature was smaller. His clothes were really too big and baggy. Uh, he had to practically put his face in the Bible to read the words. And he would lose, his, lose track and bless his heart. There's his wife, just as old in the front row, keeping him going. You know, helping him out, pointing him there. It was just, it was incredible. So he's there and, and, he, and he can barely do the job. And he looked like he, he, he escaped from hospice or something. And he's up there and he's, he's preaching. And yet, he had a profound effect with all of the imperfections. And he, he, he would try to raise up and get passionate about something. But it just wasn't there. His voice would squeak. And yet he had a profound effect. Why? Because, man, you just knew when you, when you were in his presence, there's this long line of obedience, perseverance. I mean, here's a couple that never quit. And they, they, they faced hard times. You know, and it wasn't like they were flawless, but they just still going at it. 
Still obeying the Lord, still taking every opportunity to share God's word and edify the saints. And that long line of obedience, man, it's so powerful and we need to see that perseverance in our church today. Principle three, we see that worshipers practice hospitality. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150, I'll ad lib there, 150 hungry men. Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So Nehemiah practiced hospitality. He invited these people. He had a job to do. And there were people that need to be under his leadership. He needed to offer direction. He needed to make, you know, uh, keep peace among relationships. And so he basically worked out of his home and he fed these people at his own expense. 150. And, of course, it gets in there the details about the animals that they prepared and Hey, it's one of those homes where there's something always cooking because there's always people to feed. Uh, Nehemiah was not a minimalist. You know, he didn't just live on the bare minimum. He had abundance. God blessed him with it and he shared it. He was very, very generous. He used it to advance the kingdom of God. He practiced hospitality. He used his house as a place of ministry. And so he has, he has his big house, big kitchen table and lots of things, a huge kitchen, I would imagine. Unfortunately, again, a lot of um, modern day televangelists have given the idea of, of bigness or largeness a bad name because we hear about these exorbitant mansions and how much tithe money and so forth is going into uh, rich living and air conditioned dog houses. And, and, and we lose sight of the fact that actually big, nice things can be used by God in a powerful way to minister to a lot of people. And that's what was happening in Nehemiah's day. And that's how he was using the things that God blessed him with. Um, I have a big house. And uh, one of the reasons that, that we constructed that largely was ministry-minded, ministry purposes. And it's often been times been used for for. Um, Ministry purposes, we've had youth meetings over there, Bible studies, Christmas open houses. You know, we try to open our home for other people and um, birthday parties and lots of things. It's a, it's a great joy for it to be used by that in that kind of way. And, uh, my family's shrinking a little bit, so we don't need it that big anymore. And, and things didn't, our family planning didn't work out like we thought it were. There were some things that changed. Uh, the time will come when we'll have to pass it on to the next person. And as I was preparing this and thinking about that, I began to pray, God, that this house, if we ever sell it, that this these grounds would be used, continue, continue to be used for ministry purposes, that not just anybody would move in there, but that somebody that was ministry minded and that it could continue to be an instrument that advances the kingdom of God. Hospitality is a powerful thing. Romans 12, 3 tells us to practice it. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. <sighs> you had to add the without complaint and just ruin all my fun. 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer must be hospitable. Mark Driscoll said this, once said this to his congregation. And I might suggest to you in the city of Seattle, Washington, I might suggest to you. That Seattle will not be transformed by my preaching. Seattle will be transformed by your hospitality. 
That is, you open your home and your life and your table and your fridge to serve, to host parties, to invite strangers over, to become friends. You will be doing something that is exceedingly countercultural. Hospitality is such you can't separate it from the Christian life. It's everywhere in Scripture. How do we end this life and what do we go into? What does Revelation teach us? We're going to sit around a table. The marriage supper, the supper of the Lamb. Fellowship with one another around whatever kind of food is in heaven. I'm sure it's good. And, and again, it's the idea of a meal. It's sitting around a table. It's the idea of family. It's the idea of hospitality. And then lastly, uh, worshipers store their treasures in heaven. And this, just, just quickly close with this. Again, this is Nehemiah's personal thoughts. It's kind of like some have said that this book is almost like um, Nehemiah's personal journal because it is written in first person more than any other book in the in the Old Testament. So he throws these little personal comments in there and he closes with this verse 19. Remember, for my good, oh, my God, all that I have done for this people. What is he doing there? Well, I don't think he's boasting. I think he's just pouring his heart out to God. And I think he's probably realized, like many of you have realized, that when you minister at your own expense, all that you've poured into other people's lives, you're not going to get back in this lifetime. It just very rarely happens, if at all. And so the attitude in ministering at your own expense needs to be one that... I'm looking to God. I know God, he takes note and he promises us that he, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God wants to give us good things and he will give us good things. And I think it's just a, a final prayer, another one of those arrow prayers. Maybe he's reminding himself, you know, Lord, I, I'm given all this and I know that you're taking note and I, I look forward to what you have in store for me, however you're going to reward me. Not to, to rag on televangelists too much, or at least the prosperity gospel, but you know, one of the things that is so sad is that it's taught that you give money to get money. God doesn't just reward us in $5 bills. He where's to say that in Scripture. He rewards us, but it's not... Then you have a whole congregation of people waiting for... From, Greenbacks to fall from heaven. God rewards us in a variety of ways that we couldn't even imagine. They're so much better than a $5 bill. And it's not all in this lifetime. A lot of it. So how do you avoid the trap of really getting your feelings hurt and disappointed when you have just really invested something? Say in a church. I built that church or that was mine one day. I gave it and I expect. How do you keep. From just sinking yourself in disappointment. Well, when you give, you, you, you look to God. You, get, you give because God's given to you and you look to him for the reward. And that's it. You don't expect it back from the other person. And that's how it can remain something that's very joyful. It's what Jesus would say. You're laying your treasures up in heaven. You're storing them up in heaven. And I think that's what Nehemiah means by this. Ultimately looking to God.
close with this example from John Piper when we think about faithfulness and, and our service to God. Uh, he told a story about uh, Billy Graham one day. He's thinking about the long line of obedience and faithfulness and, and so forth. He said, Billy Graham brought together staff, people who stuffed envelopes, the people who uh, swept the floors, cleaned the bathrooms, you know, licked the stamps back in the day when you had to lick stamps. They, they did uh, answer the phones, all, all this kind of unappreciated or underappreciated kind of ministry work. He, he gathers them together. He has a Bible study and he, he teaches them about the doctrine of rewards. And, he, and he, tell, he looks at them and he says, your reward in heaven will be greater than mine. And they're like... Yeah, right. I mean, you're Billy Graham. You're Billy Graham. (laughs) You're Billy Graham. (laughs) And so he said, he, he looked at him very sternly with sort of a fatherly tone and said, No, never forget this. The Lord rewards faithfulness, not just fruitfulness. Wow, that's awesome. Driscoll adds, when you stand before the Lord, it won't be. How many children did you have? How much money did you make? How many clients did you serve in your business? How many people did you disciple in your ministry? It will be matters of the heart. Were you faithful to me? Were you obedient to me? Were you faithful to the things... The opportunities that I presented to you. So I get excited about Scripture because every time I hear it, it's like it's an opportunity. Sometimes I don't want to change, and I admit and I complain. But man, sometimes I just see it as this is an opportunity for me to open up a little more, open my heart a little wider for better things to happen, for more blessings to come from God, for more change to take place. For the glory of God. And that is why we are here. So let's let's open our hearts to God. Our bank accounts to God. Our time to God. Our homes to God. For him to use for kingdom purposes. And persevere with one another. May God bless the preaching of his word.